Welcome to Intelligence Talks from the research team at Knight Frank. Intelligence Talks brings you the latest insights on property market trends and forecasts, along with expert analysis from industry leaders. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank. I'm joined today by Justin Gaze, Head of Residential Development Land, Global Head of Occupier Research, Lee Elliott, and Residential Research Associate, Oliver Knight. In our second episode, we'll firstly discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the construction sector. House builders have dominated the news lately, with Taylor Wimpy trending on Twitter and Persimmon announcing a fairly confident trading update ahead of its AGM. We'll also explore the future of the workplace, looking at how the pandemic will change how we think about offices and lessons the UK could learn from China. So Oliver, Knight Frank has forecast that total delivery on new homes will drop by 35% this year. Can you tell us a bit more about the outlook for house builders? Absolutely. Gradually, what we are starting to see now is firms setting out their strategies for a phased return to building, albeit with strict social distancing protocols in place. In most cases, though, what this means in practice is a managed, slow and steady return to activity. What is clear is that this will not simply be a case of flicking a switch back on and inevitably the hiatus and phased return to work will have a sizable impact on housing delivery, not just in 2020, but also beyond that. Do you think that there are challenges that house builders face in the short term? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, even under the assumption that the majority of house builders recommends construction in, in April and, and May, that the reality is that the getting back up to speed will take some time. That There are question marks over the supply chain, for example, and the availability of building materials, as well as more logistical concerns over delivery, distribution and also labour. More intangibly as well in the short term, consumer sentiment will also impact recovery. The fact remains that house builders will only build what they can sell. And in the short term, that's probably going to mean giving priority to restarting and completing sites where there are existing customer orders. Justin, Oliver's mentioned a few challenges there. What's your view on the extent of those? And can you add any other challenges that you think they'll be facing in the short term? Absolutely. These challenges are very real, but they're not insurmountable. You know, my understanding is of all those UK sites, about 10% of those that were closed initially have now started up. There is an estimation that actually people who are on site productivity levels are between 20 and 50 percent of what they should be. But these are expected possibly to go up by August to 80 percent. One of the key issues is getting materials on site. And this is very much delaying construction. One of the things that is often quoted by the development industry at the moment is the lack of plasterboard British ships and having almost a monopoly position, but their factories closed. So until the manufacturers of the building materials start opening again, they won't be able to deliver on site, which will delay construction. Also, you then have the social distancing issues, the actual physical ability to build on site. And if you've got a, for instance, a small flat, you're only going to be able to have one person working in it at one time. And if you've got a block and it's got a single core, and of course, the materials come up and down that core, people passing, you've got to be very careful. So productivity is is going to be enormously delayed on construction sites while we have our social distancing measures in place. The other point that Oliver mentioned is in terms of the sales market. And until the house builders get their sales and marketing suites open, they won't really know what the demand is and how deeper effect this has had on the wider economy, which we're all aware of. So given those challenges, what do you think the government needs to focus on? How much intervention do you think is necessary to help the private sector start building homes again? 
Well, cash flow is very important. And that's if you speak to any CEO, that's what they're preserving at the moment. Therefore, they're not going out and buying land. They're conserving their cash to pay their staff and to get delivery of what they've got going. But I think in terms of what the government can do, and these are all things that are going to improve cash flow in terms of Section 106 and SIL payments, if some of these could be deferred or removed, that's going to improve the cash flow. If there is a lesser requirement for affordable housing, again, that will improve the cash flow, albeit, of course, that with affordable housing is typically paid on a golden brick basis where if you are building for a registered provider, you are paid during that process. But of course, that money is less. I would really recommend an extension to the existing help to buy, which expires in April 21. And it was meant to go onto a new system with reduced capital values. When you say extension, how long do you think is necessary to help the sector get building again? I would have thought extend it by another year initially. So the changes that were meant to come in April 21 and run till April 23, maybe keep the existing system going till April 22. Also, a review of stamp duty, again, that stops people buying. And obviously, it was an expensive consideration when you're purchasing. And I think other things that you could look at are extending planning permissions. So where you've got a consent, but you've not been able to implement it because of what's gone on, let those consents be extended. Typically, they last for three years. Why not make them all be extended to five years before there's any review mechanism? I think it's a multitude of things that need to happen as a impetus into our construction sector. What about the longer term future, Justin? Clearly, the UK construction sector was facing a lot of uncertainty already due to Brexit. How do you think coronavirus will shape the longer term future of the sector? Well, I think it was interesting that at the beginning of this year, before coronavirus, we we obviously had the election and then the concerns for Brexit, which were really running through last year. And we saw a very strong uptick in terms of inquiries, demand, and there was a real buzz in the market at the beginning of this year. And I think that people thought that post the coronavirus, that this would probably go on until there was some uncertainty about the exact, exactly what was going to happen later on as we got towards our transition date. My view is that the house builder sector had an issue in terms of rising costs, and this was due to increased requirements in terms of building regulations. So house costs were going to increase. We had seen the end of last year before the election that construction activity had had declined slightly and therefore construction prices had fallen as the contractors had to be more competitive in attracting contracting work. But that changed, of course, as the market got going. And and I feel that there could be long-term issues in the construction sector. If the demand doesn't come through from the end product, then maybe a lot of the subcontractors that work on site, they will look for alternative employment. So we could have an issue with a skill shortage in this country going forward. A lot of the issues that we're seeing in the construction sector as a result of coronavirus are things that a lot of house builders and a lot of developers will have been thinking about anyway, particularly with regard to things like the supply chain and labour availability because of everything that was going on around Brexit and the uncertainty that has persisted since 2016, not knowing about tariffs on imports, not knowing what migration statistics would look like from the UK government. What I think we've seen as a result of the current pandemic is just all of those issues coming into focus, really just being sped up. Would you say, Oliver, there are any sort of positive signs maybe around reservation rates going forward after the pandemic? Or have you seen anything that might suggest that house building may be able to get back on its feet more easily? 
I think it's important to say that there are a huge number of challenges ahead. That's not in doubt. But it is worth adding that the sector has been able to come through challenging times before. And land in in particular is very much a long-term consideration. And actually, what we've seen from recent trading updates from a lot of the listed house builders is that they have been reporting some surprisingly robust private reservation numbers since the lockdown started. And that news should really provide encouragement with regard to things like the resilience of demand for new build homes. And I think it's worth pointing out that the market research has shown that actually 70% of those people who were considering moving house or buying an apartment prior to the coronavirus lockdown still anticipate buying, which is an incredibly encouraging figure. And you look at Taylor Winpey's statement last week, where they said that they had had 300 reservations during this lockdown period. Okay, they probably would have done up to 1,000 during this particular marketing period in a normal year. But to have done it with no sales operations open, I think is quite remarkable. Justin, given some hospitals are getting back to work now, what do you think are some important considerations for them, given they might be facing supply issues? I think what the house builders are concerned on is cash flow. Somebody required it as cash flow is king and somebody said, actually, it's God. It is absolutely vital for their businesses. Once they see the sales and marketing operations opening and demand for their product, then they will start building more and construction activity will increase. And I think there are some other positive points is, is of course, interest rates are incredibly low. So borrowing will be much less than it has been. I think also you're going to see people coming into the market, prices staying relatively stable. I don't believe there is going to be a great fall in prices over the coming year. There may be a slight downtick, but I think almost we've been saved, unlike during the global financial crisis where values were very high and they fell. Actually, house price inflation has either been falling or been very steady over the last three or four years. We're not going from a high point and then seeing maybe an artificially high point. I think we're going from a relatively low point. As long as people see that they're buying something that is unlikely to fall in value, that is going to give them confidence to buy. And our market is always about sentiment and people, if they believe that they've got a secure job and they can obviously pay for their mortgage financing and they've got some stability in that job, then they're going to be encouraged to go out and buy. On the sentiment point, how would you say conversations with house builders now differs to ones you might have had back in 2008? Very much a different circumstance. Their financial position is much stronger. Their balance sheets are much stronger. Beginning of this year, almost without exception, most of the house builders had eight, nine hundred a billion set aside for buying land. They've put that money aside to preserve their businesses. So they're in much, much stronger financial positions than they were last time. And therefore, this will enable them to come out a lot quicker. Oliver, on that, how would you say things now compared to the period in the aftermath of the EU referendum result? How would you say the picture differs? As Justin has alluded to, there's a very different set of circumstances at the moment compared to where we were back in in 2016. I mean, the, the fact that most house builders have shut down not just their sites, but also their sales and marketing operations, albeit for a a short period, means that the short-term disruption that we're seeing at the moment is, is very different to what we saw in the wake of, say, 2016 and the EU referendum. Our view when it comes to the housing market in in particular is the finite time span of this 
current crisis actually means that what we should see is that it's relatively contained. And what we are seeing with a lot of the house builders now, as we've talked about already, is that a lot of them are getting back onto site. They're starting operations again. And the view, I think, among a lot of them is that they want to get back to work and that they want to start building again. Justin, any thoughts on that? Would you agree with Oliver? I regard what we're going through now is a medically induced economic coma. We will come out of this. We're not going to come out of it as fast as we would all like. But I believe, as the house builders are saying, that we're probably in for a tricky year this year, getting productivity up, getting that sales market going. But I would have said by the beginning of next year, the market will be performing as it was prior to this crisis. So we've talked about the house builders. What about land prices? I mean, clearly this pandemic is going to have an impact on land. Justin, what's your view on that? At present, um, obviously, there's very little evidence of land trading, albeit we have sites in the market and we're seeing reasonable interest. Typically, landowners are long-term holders of property. And so if they see that the market is poor, then they won't offer their land onto the market. And this is going to be a challenge in the coming months, is that if the house builders feel that the market is more uncertain, they're going to increase their margins to reflect that risk. If they increase their margins, then that's going to affect what they're being willing to pay for land. So always what happens in this stage is you have a standoff between the landowners and the buyers. And this is going to be another important consideration in terms of the supply coming forward and why we need those incentive measures to support the house building industry in the short term. Oliver, how about you? What's your view on on the land market and what the government can do to ease the pain? I mean, the land market emerged with confidence, I guess, as Justin has alluded to in the in the first quarter of this year, following all of the kind of uncertainty that we had around Brexit in previous years, where it heads in the medium term over against a, a backdrop of slower delivery, rising bill costs, and arguably heightened risk is key. We would probably expect to see some slowdown in terms of pricing in the medium term. But as Justin has said, land is very much a long-term consideration. That'll be key for the market going forward. And ultimately, a lot of house builders, a lot of developers will be wanting to get back into the land market at some point, because ultimately their business model is to build homes. Justin, Oliver, thank you very much. So construction is not the only area of the property industry heavily affected by coronavirus. With many millions in the UK now working from home, another big question is how will this affect the future of the office? Lee, how do you think coronavirus has changed how we think about the office? Well, Anna, I think what has happened really is that we've we've been forced into a world of experimentation. I would argue that what we're going through right now is the great global workplace experiment. And that, you know, that's quite exciting and obviously in very tragic circumstances, but Nonetheless, the excitement that I think about people working in very different ways will ultimately have a legacy that plays out in real estate and office real estate in particular over the short, medium and the longer term. I would say, you know, we're in a process whereby we're going to be experimenting with the workplace. We're going to be evaluating the success of those experiments. And then ultimately and creepingly, we will see an evolution of the office product as we come through this crisis and out the other side. When you say experimenting, what, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, the first thing is, of course, that we've been through a huge experiment over the last six weeks in the context of the UK with people working from home, in, albeit in a forced way. I mean, 
as the ONS will tell you that somewhere in the region of 47% of the UK workforce has been working from home. If you look at the technology platforms that we've all adopted to enable that, you know, Zoom, which has been one of the popular platforms at the back end of last year, had about 10 million daily users. We now have 300 million daily users of Zoom around the world. So what this experimentation has proven is firstly that we can work effectively and productively remotely. And then that therefore causes some questioning perhaps of the function of the office going forward. So that's one example of experimentation. We've got another one upcoming, which is social distancing. When we return to the office, you know, we're not going to return in the in a normal way, as it were. And that will be another phase of the of the great experiment. What do you think ultimately we will be doing just in terms of how we'll get back to the office? Do you think ultimately we may just require smaller offices in the future? Well, I think actually in the in the short term, as we reoccupy, and the, the British government are talking about that right now, and the you know there is a suggestion that that may be somewhere towards the end of May, early June. The likelihood is that we will reoccupy space, office space, at a much lower level of occupation because social distancing will of a, of a two meter distance between individuals will will force us to occupy space very differently. On average, the gap between people in an office floor plan is somewhere between 1.4 and 1.6 metres. So clearly, in order to respect social distancing, we're going to need to actually spread ourselves out a little bit more in the office, which means offices won't be able to accommodate as many people as they have. So I think the immediate short future is really one of offices being reoccupied, but a lower level of capacity and the sort of the overhang, if you like, of people that would traditionally be in the office space will either remain at home and work from home or possibly in some cases will go into more flexible offices procured by their businesses to enable them to operate. But it's going to be, you know, I think what that is, is a real signal of about where we're going in the future, because my view is in the longer term, the office is going to be very much one of a range of work settings and people are going to work in a much more dispersed fashion geographically and go into offices when the tasks that they have at hand or their a particular need requires them to do so. Do you think then that it will be much easier then for people to work from home, both in the short term and the long term? Yeah, I mean, I think there have been two major constraints, really, of the adoption, the widespread adoption of home working. And this process of enforcing it uh, recently is going to change that. The, the two constraints were very much technology. And as I've said, whatever technology platform you've adopted, we've managed to all connect pretty effectively over the last six weeks. I think the other one, and, and not to put too fine a point on it, has been management culture sort of command and control, degree of presenteeism, all of those sorts of management features that have been, you know, in, in, in many businesses. Uh, you know, essentially what the great workplace experiment has shown is that actually people do get on and work. They are productive. They are effective, even when they're not visible and in the office. And I think you know, that sort of constraint has been removed as well. So, you know, that's not to say that we might not see a little bit more sort of uh, constraint being applied by certain businesses going forward. But I think, you know, I would say the genie is out of the bottle on home working and people are going to be more empowered and trusted to work from home. What about the working week? There's been talk recently of a seven day week. There's also been talk previously of a four day week. What do you think the week will look like going forward? Well, I think we have this great, I mean, firstly, I, I, I don't particularly subscribe to the uh, seven-day working week, although sometimes it feels like I'm doing seven days in four. But more seriously, I mean, I think we will need to change our mindset about the nature of work, actually, longer term. If we have a much more flexible approach to where we work, the natural consequence of that 
is that actually we'll start to think a little bit more about how we manage people. And we won't manage people on time. We'll manage people to task. And actually, one I, I managed someone a number of years ago who was a remote worker. And the first thing that we said was that we're not going to actually be too concerned with, you know, core hours. We're going to be more concerned with actually the delivery of task to a deadline. And it was the trust and the freedom of the individual concern to actually get on and do that work and meet those deadlines. I think longer term, you know, we we will see a change in the nature of how people work, the time at which they work and how they balance work with their wider lifestyle as well. What about the international picture? We've got Chinese companies now going back to work. Is there anything you think that the UK could learn from China in terms of their approach to going back to work? Well, I think there's a lesson. I mean, the, the first lesson I was talking to Nick Holt, who's our uh, research head in Asia, who's based in Beijing yesterday. And he was saying, actually, you know, China generally, although there's some regional variation, has been back to work for about a month. And his number one observation was, you know, it's taken time for a sense of normality to return, both in terms of the occupancy of office buildings, but also the cohesion of, of wider society. And I think so perhaps the, the major learning we should be adopting is even if we do get back into the office in some shape or form in late May, it's probably another month and and somewhat further through the summer period before we actually get any sense of normality and, and business returning to normal. Over and above that, I think the Chinese have developed very quickly tracing and testing capability. And Nick was telling me that you cannot go into any building, whether it's an office building or a retail leisure building, without having your temperature tested. And then if your temperature looks abnormal, as it were, then you're pushed into a further round of testing for for COVID. So I suspect that's also going to be a feature of our world as we get back towards reoccupancy. Do you get the sense then that occupiers will and landlords will need to sort of think about, I suppose, how the office looks like in the short term, but that I suppose after a year that things might be relatively normal again, that it might even be sort of the same as before? Yeah, well, I think firstly, on the point of reoccupancy, we've developed as, as a business a, an occupancy roadmap, a reoccupancy roadmap, which gives some sort of very practical guidance for both landlords and, and more particularly for occupiers about that whole process and the sorts of things that need to be thought about risk overlays, capacity overlays, really useful resource. I think if you take a slightly longer term perspective, I mean, the reality is at the moment we will return to and reoccupy offices with social distancing in play. But I suspect social distancing from a regulatory standpoint will start to diminish when we get into more widespread testing and tracing. And certainly by the time we get a vaccine, which is suggested that it will be sort of early next year. Now, the psychological impact of social distancing might have an implication for how offices are designed longer term. And I think the trend that we've seen in offices over the last 10 years where they've been more densely occupied i.e more people in less space i think we will start to reverse out of that and that will possibly be one of the key legacies of covid on the office market long term but i think what i mentioned at the very start of this conversation sort of the notion of experimentation and i think all the things that companies are going through both presently and as they go into reoccupation of space will all be learnings that they pick up and apply to their longer-term strategy for offices over, say, uh, the next three to five years. And I think we will get into a phase where the office is somewhat reimagined. Are there any other sort of more futuristic things where you think that offices could be different? I mean, before the pandemic, obviously, people were talking about drone pads and things like that. I mean, are there any other sort of quirky things that you think might be introduced? 
Well, I think there's a couple of things I would point to, and, and some are sort of themes that have been out there for a while, but I think that will be turbocharged by the spectre of COVID. Some of them are quite new. I mean, the first thing I would say is you know, what we've seen in the office market is that the office has, has to be seen as more than just a physical bricks and mortar environment. It has to be an experience with a service layer, with amenity, with concierge, all the sorts of things you would expect from almost a hotel environment in the office. I think that will be extended going forward because one of the things that occupiers will need to do is give their people that are being empowered to work more flexibly and remotely you have to give them a reason to invest in their commute and actually come into the office so service will be a key element of that as will indeed health and safety and you know the sorts of things I was talking about in terms of China with the the temperature testing and that sort of thing you know that's going to be part of our workplace experience for some time to come I suspect and, and possibly the other thing to draw there are many things but I think possibly one of the other things to draw upon linking those things together is the greater use of technology as we get more familiar with tracking and tracing type technology I suspect the data that derives from that will help both occupiers and landlords understand how their space is utilised or not utilised and intervene essentially in the management of the building to ensure that that experience is really rich and empowering for the people using the space. Thanks very much, Lee, and thanks to Justin and Oliver for your earlier insights. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. Mm-hmm.